All right, welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. We are going to begin with a discussion of keynote, uh, selected keynote, and uh, a discussion of both the text and the meaning and some of the themes that come out from them. Uh, we're going to be led this morning, co-led by two, two different educators. Uh, we have Rabbi Daniel Reifman, who is the Rosh Kolel of the Trisha Summer Kolel and has taught Talmud and Halakha at Trisha for close to 20 years. Uh, he also teaches at the Pardes Institute for Jewish Studies and the Institute for Advanced Torah Studies at Bar-Ilan University during the year. And by Rabbi Eliza Sperling, who is uh, a teacher of Talmud at the Mahara Yeshiva Hove Torah Be Midrash program, the director of Her Torah, Women's Torah Study and Community Program in Washington, D.C., uh, who also serves as a faculty member for Lexner Fellowship and a research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, I wanted just to begin with a, with a brief introduction uh, about uh, Keynote in general, um, a bit about Tisha B'Av this year uh, and what we're going to try to do today, this being our first virtual uh, recitation slash explanation of Keynote slash discussion. Um, in past years, I've often opened our recitation of Keynote by saying that Tisha B'Av is a hard day. Hard, not only because of our physical discomfort, but also because usually it's a hard day for us to relate to. We're mourning the loss of the temple, but none of us has ever experienced the temple. The temple is a distant echo in the Jewish past. Um, we read about extreme suffering and dislocation, uh, but thankfully that's remote from most of our personal experiences. I think it's safe to say that this year, uh, in this particular way, Tisha B'Av is not difficult at all. On the contrary, uh, as we listen to the opening line of Echa, uh, which we read last night, Echa Yashva Badad Ha'ir Rabatiyam, how deserted lies the city once so full of people, it was hard not to look out the window and wonder how the text could be so contemporary when it's, of course, so ancient in origin. Um, in a sense, this year, we have effectively been waiting for Tisha B'Av uh, since Pesach. Uh, Pesach, of course, this year being a day when uh, a time that should have been about community, about connection, about family, uh, instead magnified our collective sense of loneliness. Tisha B'Av at least validates our sense of loneliness, of vulnerability. Um, if it doesn't create a sense of community, at least it allows us to feel connected in that we are all mourning today. Um, and when we think about the emptiness of our public spaces, it reminds us that there have been periods in our history when our public spaces have not been quite as vibrant as we remember them recently. Um, for some of us, I think this Tisha B'Av will help us uh, make meaning out of the predicament we find ourselves in. Uh, as we read through Keynote this morning, uh, we will find various themes, various images to latch onto um, that may help us make sense of what we're all going through. Um, and I think some of us may actually find that Tisha B'Av this year is more comforting than usual. 
Um, we remember that God's hand is behind everything that happens to us. This is a theme of the Paitanim, that the poets of the various keynote touch on again and again. Um, and we may find, as we get closer to the end of the day, uh, where, of course, the tone of the day shifts more towards the future redemption and not only on, uh, on, the, um, on the tragedies of the past, uh, we may find that we too are hoping for uh, and, and yearning for a redemption that we can see maybe on the horizon. Um, some of us will not find that. For some of us, I think it's important to acknowledge that Tisha B'Av uh, is even harder this year, um, that the pain of now uh, is too real and too raw for us to emerge with anything as coherent as meaning. But I think what we can do at least is use Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av uh, of any day of the year gives us a language, it gives us a context uh, for talking about mourning, for talking about loneliness, for talking about loss. Um, it makes it okay to feel that way and makes us understand that we're not alone, at least in terms of the scope of history. Uh, Tisha B'Av, of course, is the day that compresses our national mourning into one 24-hour period. Um, and at least we can see ourselves as part of that history. The, the, the trials and travails of this year, of this circumstance, are not unique. Um, we have faced this before, and we've come through as a people, uh, despite all the hardship. Um, the standard Ashkenazi Kina collection, from which we'll be drawing this morning, consists of around 40 keynote. We're obviously not going to get anywhere near that number. Um, and I think... Um, there's been a shift in past years, whereas uh, I think a generation or two ago, um, the, the, the practice was simply to mumble through all 40 keynote, uh, with maybe not understanding them or reflecting on them so well. Um, there's been a shift in the past generation or two, uh, thanks in part to, uh, to Rav Soloveitchik's efforts to make Tisha B'Av a more structured uh, day, uh, a day that involved uh, Torah study, which uh, is, is, is a little edgy given that the Torah study is one of the things that we're not supposed to engage in uh, on, on Tisha B'Av, but Rav Soloveitchik nonetheless incorporated a great deal of Torah knowledge, um, a great deal of Torah knowledge uh, and information in his presentation of keynote, which he did year in and year out uh, at the Maimonides School in Boston. Um, there's been a shift toward uh, doing more of a selection of keynote and focusing on them more intensely so as to draw out um, more of the themes to get more uh, intimate uh, with, with the Paitanim and with their experiences and the messages that they're trying to send us. Um, Let's acknowledge, of course, that, that, that uh, racing through uh, difficult medieval poetry at breakneck speed is never easy, especially on a fast day, and therefore I think overall this, this tendency is a positive thing. Um, what's even more interesting is in the past few years, I've noticed that this shorter selection of keynote has coalesced into uh, something like a canon, um, and uh, if I can share screen with you, uh, I'll show you the, uh, the excerpt that uh, Karen put out this year from its keynote, uh, the keynote that were put out with uh, some of Rev Salvatric's commentary. Um, they sent out this selection, and as I looked through it, I said, oh, I picked that one, and I would pick that one too. So uh, apparently there's, there's uh, a, a growing degree of unanimity as to, or a growing degree of agreement as to which are the keynote that we should be saying. Um, 
we're going to do some keynote this morning. Uh, we'll see how many that we have time for. Uh, due to the dictates of Zoom, which don't allow us to do uh, singing with any degree of, um, with, with, without a great degree of dissonance uh, or even chanting, uh, what we're going to try to do is uh, more close reading, more explanation, hopefully a little bit of chanting and a little bit of singing for those keynote that have a standard tune toward them. Um, obviously, uh, we would like this to be participatory to whatever extent possible. If you do have questions or comments, we welcome them. Please put them in the chat box. Uh, Lisa and I will try every so often to check the chat box and see uh, who is, uh, who, if, if people have comments or questions. Okay, what is common to all of the traditions of keynote, Ashkenazi, Sephardi, and many other uh, uh, branches of Judaism as well, um, is that they begin with the poetry of Rabbi Eliezer Rabbi Kalir, also known as Rabbi, Elez, Rabbi Elzar HaKalir, or even just Kalir. Um, we know so little about him uh, in terms of his biographical information that scholars can do no more than guess that he probably lived in the land of Israel at some point between the 6th and 8th centuries CE. Uh, the, the consensus now is, is to peg him uh, late 6th or early 7th century, but we really have very, very little information. We are intimately familiar with Kalir, however, through his poetry. Uh, and the Ashkenazi, the standard Ashkenazi Kina collection begins uh, with no less than 15 of uh, Rabbi Lazarha Kalir's poems. We're going to read three this morning. Uh, two of them are uh, more typical of uh, a certain style of poetry that he, uh, it's hard to say if he, he uh, creates it, but he at least provides the baseline of the genre for the style of poetry. Uh, very dense uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of imagery, very dense in terms of its biblical references, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but also very relatable. Uh, and the extent to which these poems have filtered through the years, uh, of course, there are many more uh, that did not survive that we don't have access to, but these we do, and the extent to which they filtered through the years, uh, they've influenced uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of, uh, of Jewish poetry, uh, and even, as we're going to see, uh, modern Hebrew as well. Um, the first poem, uh, which is the first poem, uh, the first kina is the first, uh, and not only in the Ashkenazi tradition, but I believe in almost all of the kina traditions, um, is called Shavad Shurimeni Shimuni Ochrai. Is the text big enough to see? I just want to make sure that people can see. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't want to enlarge it because then I lose the English, which I want people to have access to at the same time. Um, the first thing to appreciate this poem is the unbelievable intricacy of the structure. Uh, if you notice, uh, the poems are almost, almost except for the first word, are all alphabetically arranged, starting with the word, starting with the letter Samech, then the letter Ayin, Pei, Tzadi, and going on to the next page, going all the way through the end of the alphabet. Um, that's child's play. Why are they an alphabetic acrostic? Because the first word of each line is taken from a corresponding chapter of the book of Eicha. So the word suru is the first verse in, the first word in the Samach verse. I, I, the first, first four chapters of Eicha are, of course, themselves an alphabetic acrostic. So the word suru is taken from the first word of the Samach verse of Perak Dal in chapter four of Eicha. 
the next three lines have their first words taken from the first words of the three Samach verses in chapter 3 of Eicha. The last line, Safku, is from uh, chapter 2, and Kisilak Labirai is from chapter 1. Um, then, uh, on top of that, the first word of each stanza, which is the only one that's not, doesn't match the alphabet acrostic, is taken from the corresponding verse in the fifth chapter of Eicha. So we have uh, essentially here an interweaving of all five chapters of Eicha according to the alphabetical structure, uh, which he then uses as the platform to build his poem. Uh, you, you have to kind of stop and marvel at the absolute uh, virtuosity that he uses in constructing this kina. Um, yes, the Eicha remix, so to speak. Thank you, Natalie. Um, it, it, it must be said, the virtuosity aside, the structure somewhat limits to the creativity of what he can say, because essentially, given that he's taking the first word of each of the chapters, he's locked into the general structure of the chapters of Echa, which is, in general, uh, an, an account of, of, uh, of, of, of miserable and unremitting suffering until you get to the end of the chapter where there's a call for remembrance and a call for vengeance against our enemies. And that's basically uh, the way that the chapter proceeds. Um, so let's just read through to give you a sense of how it would sound if we were chanting it together. Shavat Surimanishmuni Ochrai, Sahiu Maos Hasimuni Bedre Haverai, Sakota Mishkan Misaho de Virai, Sakota Vuklukugi Barai, Safku Kafu Madue Barai, Kisila Kolabirai. The language of Echa really comes through here. He uses not only the words from Echa itself, but a lot of other images that are both found in Echa and other biblical passages. Um, I just want to highlight a couple of, uh, of, of, of interesting things that he does manage to do despite the constraints of the structure, um, which is, uh, I think, what any good poet does, which is to create a, a sense of, 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 of layering, that, that words taken in one context can be taken also in another context and acquire new meaning. And that's exactly what he does at the end of the next stanza. This word, this last phrase, is taken, of course, from Eicha, from the first chapter of Eicha. But if you notice here, uh, whereas in Eicha itself, it seems that it's the narrator crying out about the tragedies that have befallen Israel, here, the, the Paitan, uh, Kavir, puts it in the mouth of God. He says, he acted first and later regretted, calling out, to calling others to tears, God calls others to mourn over that which he had punished us. Now it's God who's saying, I'm crying out over these, over the losses of, of that Israel has suffered. Um, we'll just continue through another two verses. Um, 
Some to binov the amod ze donai, and so not srat lo ver midanai. Sakami be may ben deny, tzadiku adunai. There's one line in this last stanza, some to binov the amod ze donai, which literally translates as they stopped in nov to stand against my, uh, against my iniquities. Okay, it's a rough translation. Uh, the, the, the precise translation here is a little tricky given that he's layering so many words and so many images on top of each other. But if you focus here on the middle, uh, the, 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 the middle two words, binov la'amod, um, if like you, if, if you, like I, were forced in high school to memorize uh, parts of chapters 10 and 11 of Yeshayahu, you would immediately pick this out uh, from the verse in Yeshayahu, which says, Od hayom binov la'amod, which is the beginning of the Haftarah that we read uh, in uh, outside the land of Israel on the eighth day of Pesach. In Israel, we read it on Yom Hatzma'ut, um, which is, of course, the, 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 the pew that speaks about the end of days and the miraculous uh, coming, of, uh, coming of redemption, a uh, period in time when Vegar's Avon Kevesvin and for the lion lie down with the lamb, etc., etc. That whole image, that whole series of images about the Messianic era begins with this image of God standing on the site of Nov, Nov being a town near Jerusalem, um, and, and, uh, and calling out and, 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 uh, toward, toward Jerusalem, which he's about to redeem. Here the image is reversed. It's the enemies who are standing at Nov, about to go punish Israel. Why Nov of all places? Aside from the fact that it's mentioned in the Navi, and he has this image of Nov la'amod, somebody standing in Nov, because Nov is, of course, the site of a terrible massacre. The murderous sin of Nov, who commits the massacre of the Kohanim who lived in Nov, Shaul in his uh, in in uh, or Shaul's henchman in uh, chasing after David. David finds refuge in the city of priests of Nov, um, who who feed him and clothe him and send him on his way. And then Shaul's henchmen come, find the Kohanim have given David refuge and massacre them all. Um, essentially, what we have here is a reminder that as terrible as the tragedies that have befallen us are. Um, they're not always unjustified. We've committed many sins, uh, and sometimes we're being punished for those sins. You are not the first, the, the Paitan is essentially saying, who have massacred Kohanim and, 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 and destroyed those engaged in God's holy work. And therefore, uh, it's, it's especially fitting that he puts this image in this verse, which ends, Tzadiku Adonai, that God is righteous, because God, of course, sometimes punishes us for things uh, in a way that we deserve. Um... Okay, uh, there's more to talk about in this very rich period, but I do uh, I do want to move on because uh, time is short and there's uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, very rich poetry that I do want to get to. Um, so I actually want to uh, take a minute here uh, to shift to a poem that Akina that's not in this packet, uh, but I photocopied the pages for you from the from the current Kina book. Um, this is another poem by Khalir, uh, one of my favorites, actually, uh, in the sense that one can have a favorite kina. Um, another uh, highly intricate poem uh, in terms of its structure. There is a triple alphabetic acrostic or a half alphabetic acrostic um, in the first three lines. After the initial letter Aleph, we have three Alephs, three Bets, three Gimels, all the way through uh, 
uh, oh, sorry, this got cut off a little bit, all the way through Lamed. And then in the last line of the poem, following, following the Aleph, we have a reverse half alphabetic acrostic, starting with Taf all the way through Mem. Um, and to top it all off, uh, he structures it according to, or, or tacks on at the end of every verse, uh, at the end of every stanza, a verse from the Torah that begins with the word me. So this is an interesting point that uh, struck me last night when we were reading Echa. Um, one of the things that Echa does, uh, grammatically speaking, is it introduces us to the idea that rhetorical questions uh, are an essential vehicle of, of, uh, of, of relating to or speaking about suffering. When you can't describe something in a declarative sentence, when it's too awful to talk about, you ask a rhetorical question. How can this be? How can it be that Jerusalem is so desolate? How can it be that we are suffering so much? And therefore, this this piyut, this kina, takes that same device, uh, harnessing the rhetorical questions that begin with the word me. Me, of course, means who, but can also be uh, a, a more general uh, introduction to a rhetorical question in biblical Hebrew, uh, using this series of verses as a way to talk about suffering. Um, the fact that every line opens with an aleph uh, preceding the acrostic letter um, means that it does an interesting thing to the poem because it means that the poem is narrated mostly in first person, actually quite intensely in first person, because Aleph, of course, introduces the first person future tense or imperfect, and therefore it's very much about the narrator, the narrator's perspective, and because it's imperfect, it's what the narrator is hoping or wishing will happen. And therefore, what we find in this kina is that the narrator uses this device to kind of break out of where he is physically or experientially and hope for or wish for all of these things that are going to help him in his predicament. Beginning with the first verse, I let my lament soar to heaven. But actually, the literal translation of Aade is I soar to heaven. Think of this image of the of the the the, the suffering subject imagining himself flying up to heaven. There's an escape, there's a desire to escape. Uh, his current predicament, but not completely, because where is he going? To heaven. Why? Inviting heaven itself to join in my lament. He's going to heaven to get God and the heavenly host to join him in his lament to make it more effective. And therefore he says, I curse this day that twice destroyed me, and grieve, would that my head were water, me tain roshi mayim, a verse that we read this morning in the Haftarah, uh, from Yirmiyahu. What does it mean that if my head were water? Yirmiyahu is saying, if only my head were made of water, I would have enough tears to adequately mourn all that my people had suffered. Uh, and this, of course, in a period uh, long before the temple had been destroyed. Um, again, in the next, uh, this, this, this notion of, um, of, uh, of, 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 of trying to recruit um, God or the heavenly host to join him in mourning uh, can, of course, seem highly oxymoronic, given, of course, that it's God who we assume is punishing us. Uh, and yet, this is a very prominent theme throughout Midrashic literature on Echa and, 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 and other, uh, other areas where the Midrash talks about Jewish suffering, that God suffers with us, that God goes into exile with us. And therefore, this is actually a piece of all of that 
uh, of that Midrashic tradition that talks about God joining us in, in, in our mourning. And again, we see it here uh, in the third, uh, the third stanza, which we'll do out of order. What is the bait here? What is the house? And who is the Baal Habayit, the master of the house? The, the house is, of course, the heaven. The Baal Bait is God. Um, and it's God who's joining him not only in mourning, but now, here he takes a verse from Yeshayahu, where God is saying, um, even if I have no weapons to punish Israel's enemies, give me Shamir Vashayit, thorns and thistles, and I will, I will attack Israel's enemies with them. Um, and this is a theme that continues throughout, uh, throughout this kinah of, of, of wanting God to participate in, or at least to hear, uh, the, 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 the mourning and lamenting that the, that the Mekonin, the narrator, is doing here. Um, this is an interesting point also to reflect on as, as we think more generally about mourning uh, and, and, and how we experience mourning and how we uh, use mourning as, as a cathartic device. Um, somebody who is in the midst of suffering sometimes wants nothing more than for somebody to acknowledge that suffering, and especially for an authority figure to acknowledge that suffering. And over and over again, uh, Khalil uses these me verses as a way of saying, all we want is for God to, to, to register the fact that we're suffering, for us to be heard, for us to be acknowledged. Here in this verse, me tain ifobi katfun milai, would that my words were written into record. Me tain leave shomeali, would that I had someone to give me hearing. All he wants is somebody to listen to him. All he wants is somebody to write down what he's experiencing. These last two verses, of course, taken from the book of Eov, was of course the paradigm of the of the suffering subject who turns to God and says, Hey, what's up? Um there's also uh, a repetition of the theme of escape uh, that we saw in the first word, a'adad chukshamayim, of flying up. Uh, this is in the, more in the second half of the poem, where again in these me verses, me tainli ever kayona, if I had the wings of a dove, he could fly away. Me uvileni ir who would take me away to, uh, to, 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 to a walled city where it would be safe. Um, this is something that the 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 Mekonim, that the narrator who's lamenting here says over and over he wants to be out of this circumstance and he's using the device of this lament as a way of imagining himself being somewhere else there is however one more theme that i just want to touch on uh i, I didn't in looking at all the various commentary in this poem i didn't i didn't actually see it uh it, it articulated anywhere but it struck me as i was reading through it the writing throughout this poem is uh, it, it, kind of an undercurrent here, imagery taken from Shir Hashirim, from Song of Songs. Uh, and this starts um, really in the second, uh, the second stanza. Of course, every line here ends with Midbar, the wilderness. And in the first line, when he talks about Yilel Midbar, the, the, uh, the, the wailing in the desert, um, he's referring, of course, to the wailing that the Israelites do on the night after the scouts come back from the land of Israel and report that the land of Israel is unconquerable and they mourn. Um, and the Midrash, of course, weighs in at that point and says, you're mourning now, I will give you something to mourn about. And identifies that day as the ninth of us. 
um, the Midbar, of course, is very rich and uh, and and and, and multivocal or or um, multivocal image in Jewish tradition. The Midbar is, in one place, in one hand, a place of suffering, a place of desolation. On the other hand, is a place uh, that 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 has uh, very po positive associations, given that it's where. Uh, Israel and God uh, consummate their relationship in the uh, the giving of the Torah and then the 40 years in the desert. Um, there's one phrase here at the end, Olat Midbar. Who is the Olat Midbar who comes from the desert, who comes from the wilderness? This is a phrase taken from Shir HaShirim. Mizot Olamin HaMidbar, the lover says, as her beloved is coming and she sees the plume of dust rising from the desert as he's getting closer to Jerusalem. And again, as the poem continues, you see a couple of phrases taken from Shir HaShirim kind of slipped in here and there. In this fourth verse, Ed agro evelo emtsa'ehu, I will search for the shepherd and will not find him again, is taken directly from Shir HaShirim, where the beloved is described as ro'ev ben hashoshanim. And of course, one of the main themes of Shir HaShirim is the two, uh, the, the two lovers searching for each other and not always being able to find each other. Um, and then, of course, that's brought to, to a head uh, in the penultimate uh, stanza in the Mekinah. Uh, is taken from Shira Shirim, would that you would be like a brother to me, but brother more in the sense of a lover. Uh, turning to God and saying, we want a more positive relationship with you. We want to return to you. Um, and the Kina ends really on that note where after uh, relaying all of this suffering and all of this lament uh, in, in the third to last uh, stanza, uh, which is the only stanza not to end with a me verse, but rather a key verse, ki yad adonai astazot, we remind ourselves that really God is behind all of this. And there is a, a, a divine plan, even if we can't always see it. And therefore, in the last two verses, last two stanzas, rather, um, the, the narrator turns to God and says, I will submit myself to you. Um, I want you to heal me. Uh, and then in the last verse, Al tishkach tzakat ariel, elav legor yudav Yisrael, al feishinan asher masar, el demor mitain mitzion yeshuot Yisrael. Ending, of course, on the note of, of redemption that ultimately, uh, even if we ask me, Tain, Mitzion, Yeshua, Yisrael, who would deliver us? Uh, we know eventually the, that the deliverance will come and that it will come from God. Okay, uh, Bernie, Elisa Sperling is going to take us now to um, I don't have my list in front of me. I think the next one in the packet is number 11. Um, which again is the third color that we're going to say by Konein Yirmiyahu al Yoshiyahu. Okay, thank you, Daniel. Um, I just wanted to say before I start talking about this kina that um, in your introduction, when you were talking about how difficult this year is, um, that really resonated with me. Uh, it's really it's a really difficult year to say I've been in such despair, our world has been in such despair for such a long time, and now let me enter into a day of yet more despair. Um, and I think that uh, I had more than my usual um, 
apprehension about Tisha B'Av this year? What would it be like to enter into a day that's full of despair? Um, and I, I think it's, I think it's interesting. You, you are almost at the end of your Tisha B'Av, Daniel, in Israel. Um, but we are kind of at the beginning, uh, and I was really scared of reading Echa this year. And uh, in some ways, it was actually very nourishing. Um, so I'm interested to just kind of experience this with all of you and, and see where it takes us. Um, this this kina kina number eleven, Yirmiyahu al Yoshiahu, describes a shattering event in the life of the nation: the death of King Yoshiahu. And I guess the thing that maybe we could compare it to is, you know, people say, um, people used to, would say, you know, where were you when JFK, when you heard that JFK was killed? Or um, uh, where were you when, you, when the, the towers came down, right? It was this kind of shattering event for the people when King Yoshiahu was killed by Paro now, who is this King Yoshiahu? So if you uh, go back to Machim uh, and Jibrahim, you know that uh, Yoshiahu is the grandson of the wicked King Manasseh, uh, who brings idolatry into, uh, into his kingdom after his father, Hiskiahu, did all the right things. And then uh, his son, Amon, follows in his, in his wicked ways. And then we come to Yoshiahu. Yoshiahu is Amun's son, and he becomes king when he is only eight years old. And, uh, and we don't know what's going to be with him. I'm gonna embarrass Orly and say she's nine. So he was eight. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, and the 18th year of Yoshiahu's reign, they are doing a bedekabayit. They are trying to uh, improve the, the, the Beit HaMikdash, the grounds of the Beit HaMikdash. And in the very famous story, they find a Sefer Torah. Uh, they find either a full Sefer Torah or maybe just a part of a Sefer Torah open to the Tochacha, to the, the curses uh, in Devarim. And uh, they find it in the Beit HaMikdash. They bring it to Yoshiahu, they read it to him. And when he hears the, these words, he's completely transformed and he embarks on this cleansing of the kingdom, of trying to get rid of all the idolatry, to bring back the worship of God. And uh, Yoshiahu, actually, um, our tradition is that Yoshiahu's Rebbe is Chilkiah, Yermiyahu's father. And, uh, and Yoshiahu tries to bring the spiritual renaissance of the kingdom. And it seems to be pretty successful. And Yirmiyahu, the, the prophet during this time, is, is so excited and so hopeful in some ways, right? Maybe there will be some change that's going to happen um, to the people. And uh, so there are 13 years of this, this spiritual renaissance, the spiritual cleansing. And then uh, the year 31 of Yoshiahu's reign, Paro Necho of Egypt, asks for permission to travel through the kingdom of Judah so that he can fight against Assyria. And Yirmiyahu counsels Yoshiahu to allow Paranacho to go through the kingdom, but Yoshiahu is very firm that he will not allow them, uh, him to go through. And so uh, Paranacho decides he's going through anyway. And so they meet at this battle of Megiddo, 
and Yoshiahu is killed. And there are descriptions of the, the terrible way in which he's killed, his body is punctured like a sieve. Uh, and it's this, this terrible tragedy uh, for the Jewish people. And uh, the question really is, you know, why, why didn't Yoshiahu just allow Paranacho to go through the land? And the Gemara and Tanit gives us an answer. The Gemara and Tanit basically says that uh, Yirmiyahu and Yoshiahu are having this discussion, you know, about whether they should allow Paranacho to travel through the land. And, uh, and Yoshiahu is so confident in the reforms that he's brought about in the land that he believes that the blessing that the sword shall not go through your land will, will come true. Um, now, it's not a sword that's directed at them, right? But it's just, a, it's just a sword. But he is so confident in the spiritual revival that he's brought about that he believes that, that, um, that nothing will happen to them. And, uh, and so, and so, right, ultimately, we see that, that he, he's proved wrong. And uh, Parnachal comes through and he's killed at Megiddo. And this, this brings to the people, right, it's like this terrible, this terrible tragedy for everyone. It's a tragedy on a national scale. It's a tragedy on a religious scale. Um, it, they don't know what to do with themselves, right? Um, it's funny because in so many ways, Yoshiahu has kind of vanished from our, you know, like our national pantheon of heroes, but really, you know, he should be there. And who knows what could have happened if, if you know, he wouldn't have been killed at Megiddo and he would have been able to, uh, to continue. Yes, Josiah. Um, and so I just want to show you a couple of sources. Right, and so they say, why was he so confident, right? If the people really had had this kind of religious revival, then why, why didn't God protect them? And there's this very interesting source in Echa Raba, uh, 118, uh, where it says, Yoshiahu did not know that his entire generation worshiped idols. What did the scoffers of his generation do? They would put half of the idolatrous form on one door, and half on the other door. Yoshiahu would send two Talmidei Chachamim, wise men, to purge their homes from idols, or to inspect, I guess. They would enter but find nothing. As they left, the people would have them would then close the door so that on the inside, the idols would be reattached. This really interesting, evocative mitrash of what's going on. And it really makes you think about the power of an individual to affect change, right? Uh, on the one hand, we have Yoshiahu, who makes these sweeping changes, and Yirmiyahu is so excited about them, and it seems like maybe something's going to happen, and you see the incredible power of the individual, especially an individual with power. But on the other hand, right, the question is, what kind of change can you bring about on the inside, in people's homes? Right, and that kind of change is much more difficult. Um, and so uh, I think it invites us to think about, as we're trying to make change in our own societies, right? What are the kinds of changes that come from the outside, right? And what kind of impact do they have? And how do we help people make change on the inside, right? How do we help people on their own take apart whatever idols they have in their own homes, the things that they're, um, 
that, that we believe they could be doing better, right? And, and help them so that on the inside, they're also trying to make those changes. Now, uh, as I said, th this, this tragedy, this unbelievable tragedy for the people, um, really struck them hard. And um, as Yael Ziegler says, this was not only a national tragedy, right? Um, Yeshayahu was the last righteous king uh, before the destruction. But it also brought about this, this, these questions about, you know, why did bad things happen to good people? That, um, that later on we're going to see in the Chorban and the destruction of the temple itself. But the people started confronting this question here with the death of Yoshiahu. So um, in, in the Gemara, and, and Khalir also has it in our Kina. So Daniel, if you could just go to the next page. Okay. All right, first of all, um, the line that starts with mem, mechatot stirat mizizot, chazon antuti hechelu levazot, because they worshipped idols behind closed doors and scorned the vision of the prophet from Anatot. So this, this line, because they worshipped idols behind closed doors, is a reference to this midrash about uh, the, the people coming in and inspecting and not finding the idols uh, behind the doors. Uh, it's interesting, uh, I believe that it was Ibn Ezra who criticized Khalir for uh, some of his uh, poems, that you really have to know a lot of midrash in order to understand uh, Khalir's poetry. Um, and then if we go down a little bit, you see um, this, this question of theodicy, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? So they come to, this is where it starts with Kuf, um, Kalim Satutu Acharav, Ezon Motsaf Bihu. I'm going to read it actually from mine because I can't read the screen. Ve'ad Mitsoi Nefesh Masav Hifihu, Ruach Svatav Hifza Mipihu, Sadiku Adonai Ki Mariti Fihu. So this is when Yoshiahu is dying. Swiftly they drew near to hear his last words. His deeds remained beautiful even as he expired. With his last gasp, he mumbled, the Lord is righteous, it is I who defied his word. So again, within this kina, trying to find an answer to why, why do bad things happen to good people? Why did this terrible tragedy happen when Yoshiahu was such a wonderful king, right? So maybe it's because we, you know, even on the outside, it looked like we were doing better and the inside we weren't. And we have Yoshiahu himself giving Tzidu Kadim, saying that this, this is all righteous. Um, this, this was all uh, just. Finally, um, just to point out, this is a, a eulogy, a lamentation for the death of Yoshiahu. Um, according to our tradition, Parapidalad of Echa is also a, a lamentation over the death of Yoshiahu. And so you see the first word of this kina of each of the, the lines of this kina echoes the first word of each of the lines of Parakdalid. So for instance, Echa Eli Konanum Elav, right? In Parakdalid we have Echa Yuam Zahav. Then we have B'nei Cham Avram. In Parakdalid we have B'nei Tzion Hayikarim, right? Gam Bechol HaMalachim. In Perik Dalad, we have Gam Tanim Chatsushet. So again, right, we have this, um, this um, uh, going back and forth between Perik Dalad and, and Kina Yud Aleph. Our tradition is that because Yirmiyahu 
said these 22 lines of Hesped and Lamentations for Yoshiahu. So uh, and as a reward for that, there were 22 years uh, between the death of Yoshiahu and the Chorban of the first temple. So let's say this to ourselves and then we'll go on to uh, 16. I'll, I'll read it out loud for this one. Tovim <laughs> Mechatot stirat mezuzot, chazon anatot echelu levazot, nanua namim lechumo lehavzot, veloisev panav saftu alzot. Suru heidu adlo shia, veimanusu matisod nishia, pne kerav karav veloatalo shia, veyoru hayorim la melech yoshia. Odenu otemina begevior no chatsim, chaitach a chaitzorim velo chatsim. Sadu Samu Huk Matarala Hitsim It's an interesting image here that it says uh, they ambushed him and made him their target. They made him like a uh, a, a target for for, uh, for shooting practice, pelting him with three hundred arrows, according to the Midrash. Kalim Tatuacharav Ezon Motzafihu Vyad Mitsuine Feshmasavihu. Rastavatav hivtsami piu tsadikadunai ki mariti fihu. Sisinov ki kanoza am, the shalim shown am bavon bitam. Tam ketamatov am zubifash am, the ekonina love kolechayu am zahav. Tam bemikre chalkos migido lishtot. Bemo ech not shmitak egal hakel de tot. Talasimushtayim meharos chatot. Okay, uh, we'll now go on to uh, the next kina that we're going to say together, which is kina number 16. Um, again, uh, the, uh, this is, I think, the last kina from Kalir that we're going to say together. Um, and is relates to other midrashim uh, that that uh, that are found regarding the period of the korban. So we are now going from um, the first temple to the second temple. 
and uh, we this this kina presents us these uh, allusions to these terrible stories about what happened at the time of the second Beit Hamikdash. Uh, we learn about Titus, um, Roman Titus, who comes in and defiles the Beit Hamikdash in ways that that nobody could have comprehended. Um, we who were so used to the sanctity of the Beit HaMikdash, to the fact that nobody could come into the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies, except the high priest, uh, only on Yom Kippur, and even then we were so scared what will happen to the Kohen Gadol. Um, Titus enters into the Kodesh HaKodeshim, takes a Sefer Torah, takes a prostitute, and he engages in terrible acts in the Kodesh HaKodeshim on the Sefer Torah. And people are, are hearing about this, looking at this, and just asking, how, how could this happen? How, how, how could this happen to us? Um, and I wanna, I wanna take this, we um, could just go back to the, the Kina, okay. Um, so if you see here, right, it, it tells us, comes into the Kodesh HaKodeshim. Um, I don't know if you could just move the little, yeah. <laughs> he comes into this, this most sanctified of places, the place um, that, that we consider to be our holiest. How is it that, that this wicked person was able to defile um, the place that, that was the holiest, that was the most uh, valuable and beloved to all of us? And it as the keynote goes on, it describes right how how this this dissonance that the people experienced. Right, we know from tradition. Right, we know that when the sons of Aaron come in and bring offerings that they shouldn't have brought, even with the best of intentions, fire comes down and takes them. And yet, look at these people who are able to enter into the Beit Hamikdash to do all these terrible things. Right, how could it be? How could it be? That, um, that we know one thing from our tradition and then with our own eyes, we're, we're witnessing this, this, these other terrible things. And I wanna take us from, um, from this kina to a very different source, um, a book that I read recently um, called To the Edge of Sorrow by Aaron Appelfeld, where he talks about um, the Shoah. And he talks about a group of partisan fighters who are in Ukraine, and um, they're Jewish partisan fighters. Um, they, they have all witnessed terrible things that have happened to their families, that have happened to their villages, to their friends. And the few of them are able to make their way up onto the top of the mountain um, and come together. And, and they, they go, they're, they're, um, they're hopeful that they will be able to bomb the train tracks that are bringing Jews to the concentration camps. And what's interesting, one of the things that's really interesting about this book is that the, these Jews do not really have any connection to Jewish tradition. Their parents rejected it. They were not brought up with any tra tradition at all, right? As opposed to in this kina where they're so in, enmeshed in the tradition, right? They have such expectations of what will happen to them and they can't, they can't believe what they're seeing in front of them. In this novel, right, they don't have any real, real connection to Jewish tradition. 
but by seeing what's going on in front of them, all the atrocities, all the terrible things that are happening, they come, some of them, not all of them, actually come closer to Jewish tradition. And I'd like to uh, read with you an excerpt from, from this book that I think is an interesting countertext to this keynote by Collier. So I'm gonna see if I can share my screen. Okay, so this is from chapter 19. So Camille is the commander of these partisans, uh, these Jewish partisans up on the mountain. And even though Camille comes from no Jewish tradition, um, he, he, he starts, as he's leading them, he starts to um, say things that really um, make people wonder, right? Because he's talking about the, the, the tradition of our forefathers and that we need to come close to that. And uh, another thing that's interesting before we get to this is that when, when the partisans go down to the village to make raids so that they can get food, actually the most important thing for them is when they're able to find books and they bring the books back onto the top of the mountain and they start to read from the, these books and these books that had not really meant anything to them before, Jewish books, all of a sudden get great meaning for them. So um, here it is from the, uh, to the edge of sorrow. All of a sudden, the spirit came over Camille and he spoke about our forefathers and the God of our forefathers with whom we must connect. Denial had eroded our best qualities, Camille said, and we had reached rock bottom. We couldn't believe our ears. He didn't sound like the commander who had led us through hostile forests and strangling swamps, but like a spiritual leader flooded with faith. The veteran fighters do not think as Camille does. A thin trail of fog always accompanies his words, but there are people who interpret his state of mind as wings that propel his bold actions. Now he's talking more and more about denial, alienation, abandoning the wellsprings of life, international movements that eat us up inside. Without our forefathers and the God of our forefathers, our lives hang by a thread. This tall and powerful man who leads his soldiers in daring raids, who knows the map of this region like the palm of his hand, is transformed at night when he is joined to words and phrases whose sounds frighten us. Several fighters ran out of patience and one shouted at him, we want to do the impossible. The connection with the ancestral God has been broken once and for all. You can't connect what can't be connected. This is not a time for mystical delusions. Yes, we have been mortally wounded, and the pain is enormous, but we will not bandage the wounds with false bandages. We need iodine to disinfect the wounds, not whispered words. Camille did not respond. He sat leaning on his hands, hearing the accusations as if bearing his back to the whip. There was no one that night lonelier than he. For a moment, it seemed as though he was about to break down, lay his weapon on the ground, and say, I can see that my faith is not to your liking. I have no desire to argue. There's no point in arguing about faith. If you lack confidence in me, it's best I leave, go on my way into my fate, and you do what your heart tells you to do. Instead, he did not utter a sound. And when I think about this Kenan number 16, um, of people seeing the what seems to be so so disconnected from what they knew. In some ways, I, I really see the, these same words. In some ways, when we saw this, there was no one lonelier than us, right? When we saw what God had done 
had allowed Titus and the Romans to do to the to the Beit Hamikdash to the Kodesh Hakodeshim. There was no one lonelier. We, we hear the accusations as if bearing our backs to the whip. We do not utter a sound. We don't know what to make of this this terrible disconnect, this terrible dissonance between what we believe and what we see. And this kina really um, lays it out for us in ways where we can't even bear to say the words of what happens to us at the time of, of the korban. I do think, um, Daniel, if you could put the um, kina back up. Thank you. And then if we can just go down to the next page. Thank you. So we have these different images of destruction and dissonance. And then at the end of the kina, um, we, here we go. Here we go, uh, where it says, Atakatsafta of Yersheta Lefanot. So it tells the story of these children who were taken captive um, and they were sent on ships to Rome. So, you know, children, um, young, young people, um, and they were sent on ships and they all knew what they were going to be sent for and they were going to be sent uh, for prostitution uh, or other uh, sexual violence and they don't know what to do. And so uh, they're on these ships and they try to figure out, you know, what, what is our next move here? What, what should we do? And so the Gemara actually tells us the, the discussion that they had. I will go back to my screen share. Okay, so this is in Gutin 57b, and I'll read it, I guess, in English. Rabbi Huda says that Shmuel says, and some say that it was Rabbi Ami who says this, and some say that it was taught in the Baraitan. There is an incident involving 400 boys and girls who were taken as captives for the purpose of prostitution. These children sensed on their own what they were expected to do, and they said, if we commit suicide and drown in the sea, will we come to eternal life in the world to come? Right, this was their question, right, is there? The oldest child among them expounded the verse. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. I will bring back from Bashan, from between the teeth, being Shane of the lion, and I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, is referring to those who drown in the sea for the sake of heaven. In other words, yes, you will get Allah Haba, you will get the world to come. When the girls heard this, they all leapt and fell into the sea. The boys then draw a Kavachomer inference, because we're still Jews, with regard to themselves and said, if these girls for whom sexual intercourse with men is their natural way act in such a manner, then we for whom it is not our natural way all the more so. And they too leapt into the sea. Concerning them, the verse states, as for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are reckoned as sheep for the slaughter. And the end of this kina talks about this story, right? Um, the Kalir is making reference to this story here. And I was thinking about um, the difference between the beginning of the kina and the end of the kina, because the beginning of the kina deals with with people who may who may have had, you know, the korban comes in such a terrible thing, but they've had a lifetime of experiences and they're experiencing this dissonance. But these are children; these are young people, and maybe their whole life really was caught up with fighting against the Romans, right? Where they didn't feel like they were. Um, such a special people, right? And for, for them to not have have those things except as memories transmitted from their children to give to them, and yet still be able to take these actions, right? That's an amazing thing, right? Where they are able to, to take this, this, this 
all these brave, courageous actions for the sake of a God where they didn't experience all the good things of the temple. They didn't experience God in their lives, probably, um, mostly in a good way, and that they're still able to take the, this action. And it reminds me of the end, well, later on in this story, there was one little boy um, who's with this group of Jewish partisans, and they all take care of him, and they try to kind of shield him from what's going on, and uh, he's really their light. Um, and here it goes. Michael, or Michael copied out a song, this is the boy, that Rabbi Levi that Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bertichev used to sing to himself. Like these are not these people are not connected to tr tradition, so this is new to them. At night, after distributing the pages to the study group, he was asked to read it. Uh, Michael was self-conscious, but Maxie, his tutor, who stood beside him, encouraged him, and he read. And it's just an amazing thing to hear somebody during the Shoah uh, up on the mountain because his family has been decimated read these words. Wherever I go, you, wherever I stand, you, only you, again, you, always you. If I feel good, you, if I feel bad, you, only you, again, you, always you. Sky, you, earth, you, up, you, down, you. I look thus, I see this. Only you, again you, always you, 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 you. Coming from Michael's lips, the poem sounded as if it were written for him. The sharper minds among us were about to pounce and dissect it, fell silent at once, and all were filled with wonder and emotion. With every passing minute, it became harder to hold back our tears. Okay, now let's read together Kina 16. Um, if it's okay, I don't actually want to read through the entire kina. Uh, maybe we'll read through the last few verses about the the midrash of the children, if only because time is is uh, things are time is a bit short. Ata katzaf tevir sheit alefanot yiladim asher ein bahem kol maum misham lehipanot lamarag shugoyim belo shata elamincha pinot v'shilchum neretz ut b'shalosh sefinot. Ashivainu Shivu, Kivau, Binivreyam, Vishit Fusam Nahadim Paul Bayama, Shirvish Bahot Sharu Kaliam, Kalah Harag, Nubim Tulot Yam, Kitamot Bawad, Nafshan, Kalzot Batan of Lashach, Lashacha, Shachnucha, Hilulimam Shan, Tikratam, not knew the Meshib Mibashan, Rat Kornishma, Uralama Tishan. Um, the, uh, the, one of the themes that comes out of this last kina is uh, the theme of martyrdom. Uh, and uh, Max noted in the chat column that, um, that this raises a, a, a particularly difficult theme uh, for those who have uh, suffered uh, with, with thoughts of suicide or have suffered uh, sexual abuse. Um, the suffering we recount on Tisha B'Av is real and can be difficult uh, for those who, for whom this is not such a distant personal experience. Uh, take that as a kind of trigger warning, if you will. Um, but, but, I, but I do, I, I do mean it seriously because in the next two keynote, especially, we confront this idea of martyrdom uh, head-on 
um, it becomes an important theme, especially as we get closer to um, as we get closer to uh, the Middle Ages. Uh, the keynote arranged, of course, in chronological order. Although that's not true with all the keynote collections, it's true specifically with the Ashkenazi keynote collection. But other keynote collections arrange them differently. Um, we move now into keynote that were written in the Middle Ages. Um, based, again, uh, in part on Midrashim, similar to the Midrashim that undergirded the previous Kina. Um, the next one, which I don't want to go to in too much depth, I think it's one of the ones that we're most familiar with because we say a different version of this Kina on Yom Kippur, uh, is Arzeh Vanon Adirei HaTorah, which is about the Asarah HaRugei Malchut, the ten martyrs uh, of the period of uh, following the destruction of the Temple, uh, during the Roman persecutions, and especially in the time of Bar Kochba, uh, in the, uh, the rebellion that was put down uh, by Hadrian. Um, we'll just read through the first verse together. Using, of course, some of the imagery from Echa al Elani Bochia. For example, um, this, uh, this Paitan, uh, who is um, this Paitan, who is really Mayor Ben Yechiel uh, from, uh, from Germany in the 13th century, uh, takes the, uh, the by what is by what had by that point become an established tradition of the ten martyrs were killed by Hadrian, or at least in that uh, general time period, uh, and turns it into uh, a narrative. Uh, this narrative is actually not quite as rich as the one that we read, or at least Ashkenazim read, in, uh, in the Musaf service on Yom Kippur, uh, which gives even more information and more details about uh, how they're chosen to be killed and, and what they do and how they accept the judgment upon themselves. But the idea of martyrdom uh, becomes a central idea during this period in history. Um, and as the legend of these 10 martyrs develops uh, over time, um, it becomes the source for, uh, for, 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 many, uh, for many different communities or traditions that upheld martyrdom as, as something laudatory, as something praiseworthy. Um, to take, just a, for a moment, to take a more critical eye to this tradition, uh, again, as I said, the Ten Martyr tradition uh, was already well established even by the Gaonic period, uh, so we're talking even before the Middle Ages. Um, but if you look uh, at, at the figures who are mentioned in this Kina, uh, we have some historical information about them. Um, some that didn't even live at the same time period. Uh, to say nothing of being of, of 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 meeting their demise at the same time period. So uh, so this is clearly uh, a later um, a later reworking of earlier historical material, giving it a narrative frame, bringing together many different uh, prominent rabbis from this period, and and talking about how they all suffered the same uh, the same fate of martyrdom. Uh, even if in historical fact we know that uh, they may have suffered martyrdom, but it wasn't at the same hand or at the same time. Um, another thing that draws these ten figures together uh, is their uh, their interest in uh, in mysticism, and there's a heavy dose of mysticism involved in the story. Uh, it's told about how the Roman emperor declares they have to be all they have to all be killed, and they said, uh, "We will accept this judgment upon ourselves as soon as we check with the forces in heaven." And they do a mystical rite, and one of them goes up to heaven and 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 hears that yes, this has been fated to happen, and they accept judgment upon themselves. 
Um, so that's significant, first of all, in the fact that, that uh, there is this kind of mystical dimension to this, uh, that God has declared this upon them. Uh, and, and in most of the different traditions of this narrative, uh, there's no justification for it, aside from a very loose sense of, um, in some traditions, it's the fact that there are 10 rabbis and there are 10 brothers of Joseph who sold him into slavery, and therefore they're paying the price for the sin that was committed by, the, by Joseph's brothers. Um, but aside from that, uh, the, 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 the sense of justice here is, is very loose, uh, if, if, if present at all. Um, but also um, because it gives a certain, uh, it, it gives the, the narrative a certain kind of character um, of, of, of being uh, mystically, uh, mystically informed, uh, giving another dimension that is kind of uh, transhistorical or of history uh, that, 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 that relates to the death of these 10 martyrs. Um, where it comes into play, uh, and especially the prominent fashion, is in the next kina that we're going to look at uh, and, and read through a little more of, Hacharishumi Menu Vadabeira. Hacharishumi Menu Vadabeira is one of a number of keynotes uh, that are in the standard kina collection that relate to um, the Crusades or other, uh, other massacres that happened in Europe in the High Middle Ages, um, particularly in Germany and France, uh, and also uh, a little later on in Spain. Uh, we don't know who the author of this particular pina was, nor are we 100% certain which massacre it refers to, but unfortunately, uh, beginning with the First Crusade in 1096 and through the next couple hundred years, there is no shortage of massacres uh, to choose from. Uh, some, some references I saw, some, some, uh, some editions I saw say this refers to, uh, to, the, um, to the massacre in, um, in mines in, during, the, during the actual First Crusade. So let's just read through uh, the first stanza, and then we'll talk a little more about the style. Sifdi aladati asher nitna lishama arid besichi vahima vekol nihi arima. Really, very little uh, of substance happens in this, or uh, is, is discussed in this first stanza. It's really just the narrator saying over and over again how he's going to scream at, how he's going to cry out, and he ends with two biblical verses arid besichi vahima vekol nihi arima, which ends uh, every subsequent stanza. Um, the style here, uh, if you can tell, is certainly looser than, the structure is definitely looser, certainly than the, uh, the very tightly woven and tightly structured PU team that we read before by Khalir. Um, and the sense that you get from this kina is that it's much more raw and much more real. Um, there are points in the kina, in fact, where um, he just simply cries out uh, here in the, towards the end, uh, there's nothing to say except to just cry out in anguish um, because uh, it's likely that whoever wrote this kina actually witnessed or had firsthand testimony uh, of the terrible tragedies that befell the, uh, the communities of their own valley or elsewhere in Europe during this period um, that were really very brutal, very bloody, uh, and, 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 and very frightening. Uh, Jews had lived in Europe, after all, for many hundreds of years in relative safety, 
they were highly dependent on their Christian neighbors and Christian authorities for their well-being and for, for their physical well-being and their safety. Um, what snapped in 1096 as mobs moved through uh, the Rhone Valley uh, and massacred several Jewish communities there um, was, was really a breach of that sense of safety. And all of a sudden the Jews realized they couldn't rely on, on the Christian authorities to save them. Um, and, and, and that was entirely uh, disorienting, even if the losses were not necessarily as great as, as some of the sources make them out to be. Um, so this kina is really coming from a place of, of uh, very, uh, very close to the event itself, as opposed to Khalir uh, and, and the other, some of the other putim that we read, which are coming several hundred years after the events they describe. Uh, and therefore the imagery here is, is, is really very raw. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the structure as well, it often seems sometimes like, like the, the poet just has, to, has this, this kind of stream of, of, of painful memories that are just flowing forth and, and therefore uh, defy the giving, giving this particular kina any kind of structure. Just the, the, the stanzas are not of a standard length. Sometimes it just goes on and on and on. Um, this also, of course, relates to martyrdom. Uh, and sometimes uh, in certain medieval sources, this one included in an even more painful way than, uh, than the tradition of the Ten Martyrs. The Ten Martyrs, at least, um, if they chose martyrdom, so to speak, they did so in their highly compromised circumstances where the choice was not really theirs at all. Um, and yet in this case, the Jews often had something of a choice. They had a choice to convert or be killed. And sometimes they in fact took a third choice, which is to, uh, to commit suicide or even to, uh, to kill uh, one another. This was of course a highly controversial, um, I hesitate to call it a practice, but a highly controversial kind of event. Uh, it happened in a number of communities in Europe during the Middle Ages. Um, and the interesting and, and, and difficult thing to get our heads around is the extent to which the people who suffered martyrdom often at their own hands or hands of their other Jews uh, were venerated. They were venerated as martyrs. They were venerated for not accepting conversion. Um, this is a very hard thing for us to get our heads around in this day and age and, and not necessarily something that we should buy into wholeheartedly. Um, the, the best analysis of this that I've seen uh, is by Professor Chaim Salvechik. Um, who's written, uh, among other scholars, has written about this, this, uh, this concept of martyrdom extensively um, and talks about the mindset of Jews in, in the Middle Ages, what it meant to be a Jew living uh, in often very tiny communities uh, in a sea of, of, uh, of, of Christians, uh, what it meant to feel that you were constantly defending your faith uh, in the face of the other, the other who regarded you as the killer of Christ, the other who regarded you um, as, as, as the, you know, the, the, the figure who is always going to be associated with the devil, um, what this meant for you and your religious perspective, and then how you came to view Christianity. Um, the idea of converting was so, such an anathema to them, went against the very fiber of their being, that in some sense, one could say they really didn't have very much choice. To convert to Christianity meant to defy an essential uh, unforgivable part of yourself. Um, and therefore, uh, again, we don't have time to read through this, and, and uh, if you do, I warn you, the imagery uh, is, uh, is very graphic, um, but, um, but that's where this, this Python is coming from. That's the sense of which he's venerating the martyrs of this kind of event.
Uh, one interesting thing before we leave it and go on to the next kina is the last verse where he begins, Torah, Torah, Hirisak, Vihit Palshiba Afarim, Avel Yachid Asilach Mispeid Tamarim. Torah, Torah, wrap yourself in sackcloth and wallow in the dust, mourn as if for an only child a bitter lament. He turns here to the Torah at, in the second person and asks the Torah to mourn those who died on her behalf. Um, so first of all, this taps into the idea again of the, the, the tradition again of the 10 martyrs um, who are venerated, of course, not only for being martyrs, but primarily for being great scholars and the loss of these 10 figures to, uh, to Israel. Uh, is, is, is a loss of their scholarship and a loss of their leadership and a loss of their piety. Um, the same idea is being, uh, is, 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 is being conveyed here in the sense that these were great scholars who were lost to history and lost to the Jewish people. Uh, not only they were lost, but also their Torah was lost, their Torah knowledge was lost. And therefore the Python turns to the Torah and says, Torah, why aren't you crying for them? Um, We'll see uh, in a few PU team, in a few keynote rather, that, um, that the, uh, this idea of speaking to an inanimate object in the second person uh, becomes very prominent in some of the later keynotes. Uh, depending on what this was written, it may of course tap into one of the keynotes that we'll read later, Sion Haloti Shali, where Yehuda Levi turns to the land of Israel and addresses her in very similar terms. Okay, uh, we'll go on now to the next keynote, which is not in this packet. Uh, but rather in the additional pages. Um, kina number 26, which is another kina uh, that relates to Midrashim about Yirmiyahu. Okay, so kina 26, now we're back at the time of the destruction of the first temple. And this, uh, this kina uh, is also by Khalir. And it's, we think, the closest midrash that we know of that that is similar to this kina is from Echa Rabbah, um, but as we'll see, it it's different, right? The end is certainly different, and and parts of it are different. So it may be that Kalir had a different midrash uh, in front of him that we just don't have now, or it may be that he is taking some liberties with the midrash that we have. Um, and this is a fascinating midrash. It's about uh, when the people are leaving uh, Eretz Yisrael and they're going into captivity. So God comes to Yirmiyahu and says, I am like a person whose son died on the day of his chuppah, his wedding. Um, go and cry for me. I need you to go cry for me and I need you to go summon the, the avot and I'll add the imahot and have them cry for me as well. And, uh, and so Yirmiyahu goes to the, uh, the graves of the uh, Avot and Imahot, and also, so he goes to Marat HaMachpilah, and he also goes to find Moshe. And interestingly, in the Midrash, in Echa, God says, go to Moshe and have him cry out for me. And Yirmiyahu says, nobody knows where Moshe is buried. I can't really go there. And um, God says, I'll show you. And, and he goes, and Yirmiyahu goes and finds Moshe. And uh, actually, in terms of Moshe, there's a really uh, heartbreaking piece of this kina where uh, Yirmiyahu goes and he gets Moshe, and they go and they see the people as they're going off into captivity to Babel. And the people see Moshe, and when they see Moshe, they think, 
our redeemer has come, right? It's, it's, uh, we have been, we have been saved and they run over to Moshe and Moshe says to them, I'm sorry, I'm not coming here to redeem you. I'm just, uh, I, I am here for now, but then I'm going to have to disappear, but my Torah will stay with you. And so Yirmiyahu goes out to the, um, to Moshe, but in this, the Midrash, he also, and in the Kina here, goes to Avraham, to Yitzchak, to Yaakov. Um, and the Midrash, he also tries to get each one of the letters of the alphabet to come and plead before God for the people. And with each argument that, that each of the forefathers um, and Moshe and the letters of the alphabet are making to God, God says, I, I, I would love to, to redeem them, but I can't. Look what they did. Look how they violated everything that you stand for. Look how they violated everything that the Torah stands for. And so, uh, and so God keeps answering, right? And you see here in this kina, right? That's the same kind of back and forth. So, kulam uh, they all cried out and lament, al banim, over the absent children, right? They prayed for mercy from the one who dwells on high. Right? Where is the promise? I will, rem I will remember the covenant with the ancients. And God says, What can I do for you, my children? This is my decree, right? They exchanged my honor for naught. They had no fear, no remorse. I had to turn my eyes from them. So Abraham comes and pleads, and God says, I can't. And Yitzchak comes and pleads, and God says, I can't. And then Yaakov comes and pleads, and God says, I can't. I'm just going to share my screen. Right? So God says, says uh, and then finally Moshe says, right? Right? The faithful shepherd uttered, ground into ash and dirtied. The sheep I nurtured in my lap are prematurely shorn. Where is the promise? Israel is not bereft. Right? And God says, Im um, no, I'm sorry, Moshe says that. And then, but then, okay, so those of us who know the Midrash in Echa are ready for Rachel to come now and to plead for, for her children. But this uh, Kina is different. I don't know if Khalir just had a different Midrash that he's referencing, or he wants to um, bring all the Imahot into, into this Kina, right? Kol b'chilea the sound of Leah's wail pounds upon her heart. Rachel achota mevaka obanaha. Her sister Rachel bemoans her children. Zilpa maka panaha. Bilha mekonenet vishtea deha. Zilpa slaps her face. Bilha laments with both hands, right? Um, so they're all asking, they're all pleading before God. And then finally, God responds to all of them, right? And says, um, I can't. Totally make it out. Something to be named the Milchatchem. Thank you. Mala, Mala, call me Shalatechem. Shalachi Babala Lamanchem, Hinanimo Shavev Galut Benechem. Return perfect ones to your place of rest. I will indeed fulfill your requests. I was sent to Babylon because of you and will return your children from exile. So here you see, by the way, God says, I was sent to Babel, right? God is also being uh, sent into exile with God's children, and God will return with them. 
Um, and I just wanted to look at the parallel midrash very quickly. Um, one second. Uh, here we go. Right, so this is from Echa Rava, and this is the end of the midrash as we have it, and it's a very famous midrash. That time Rachel left before the Holy One, blessed be he, and said, Master of the universe, right? So she makes an argument. Everybody else has made arguments before God, and God has rejected all of their arguments. And now Rachel comes and makes the argument. Master of the universe, it is apparent to you that Yaakov, you're sorry, that to you, that Yaakov, your servant, loved me with an outside love and worked for my father for my hand for seven years. And when those seven years were done, it was time to marry Yaakov. My father decided to switch my sister for me to marry my husband. This was very difficult for me when I heard of my father's plan. And I told my husband and gave him a sign so he would be able to distinguish me from my sister so that my father could not switch us. Afterward, I regretted my actions and I suffered my desire and had mercy on my sister that she would not become an object of ridicule. That night, they switched my sister for me, and I gave my sister all the signs that I had given to my husband so he would think that she was Rachel. And not only that, but I hid under the bed where my sister and Yaakov were lying down, and he would ask her questions, and she would stay quiet, and I would answer for her so that he would not recognize her voice. And I acted with chesed, with loving kindness toward her, and I did not act jealously toward her or allow her to be ridiculed. And if I, whom flesh and blood, dust and ashes, did not act with jealousy to my rival wife and did not allow her to be embarrassed and ridiculed, and you are the everlasting king, why are you acting jealously toward idol worship, which has no value? And you have exiled my children, and they have been killed by the sword, and the enemies have done their will to them. So immediately God hears Rachel's argument in a way that God was not able to hear the arguments of anybody else. Uh, God's mercy was aroused, and God said, For your sake, Rachel, I will return Israel to their place. As it says, right? Cry is heard in Ramah, wailing, bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted. And then God says, Restrain your voice from weeping, your eyes from shedding tears. For there is a reward for your labor, declares the Lord. They shall return from the enemy's land. So this is a very beautiful mitrash that Kalir does not use, right? Kalir uses a lot of the beginning of this mitrash, but does not use this end part of the mitrash. And I just wanted to take a couple seconds and talk about Rachel's argument. Like, what is it about Rachel's argument that nobody else is able to sway God and Rachel's argument that I gave up my husband and I spared my sister from embarrassment. So too, you should, you should not, not act jealously and you should spare your children. Why does this, why does this help? So I, I'd like to give um, one more of a not so inspirational message and then maybe an inspirational message. Um, I think what she's saying here, right, is that why was Rachel able to give up her her husband for Leah. And I think when you think about it, I think she probably knew that even if she would give up, um, even if she would switch with Leah, the, her, the relationship between Yaakov and Rachel would survive because it was real and she had confidence in the relationship. 
And so she knew that even if Yaakov was going to be with Leah, right, that even so, she didn't have to worry about her relationship with Yaakov. And I'm wondering if this is the argument that she makes to God, right? She says, your people, I know that they've been worshiping idols, right? But you should feel secure in, their, in your relationship with them. There is nothing that is going to come in between the, you and the, and the people. Even if they, you know, on one night they're with this idol, you, the relationship between you and the people is so strong, it's so intact, there's no reason for you to punish them. So that's one answer. Um, the Ba'alei Musar give a uh, more inspirational answer, and they say that um, in this case, um, if we say that the Beit HaMikdash, I mean, I guess we say the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed because of baseless hatred, right? Sinat Chinam. So here, Rachel says, I acted with Ahavat Chinam. I acted, I acted with unbounded love for my sister, Right, if I can act with love, we have this capacity of acting with love. The Jewish people have this capacity of acting with love. You, in turn, act with love toward us. And so God says, I've heard your words and I will bring them back. The next kinah um, is among the most well-known keynote. It's part of not only the Ashkenazic uh, kinah tradition, but I think every kinah tradition. Uh, and it's also one of the few kinah that's sung. When I looked online to see uh, different editions of, uh, of how this is sung, uh, every ethnic group has its own tune, but everybody's got a tune. Uh, we don't know for sure who the author is, though, though I saw that um, at least one scholar identifies it as Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra, the, um, the biblical scholar, uh, who's, who's one of the most famous biblical scholars that we, uh, from the Middle Ages. Also one of the great poets of the Middle Ages, whose songs we sing among another occasions uh, at the Shabbat table. Um, the, you'll notice immediately that the Spanish style of poetry and even the Hebrew is a little different than we saw in Kalir. Uh, the, the, the words are easier to understand because they're more rooted in biblical Hebrew. Um, the structure is not quite as, uh, as intricate. Um, and this is a kinah that lends itself to singing uh, if uh, in a very somber tune. The structure of the Kinah is very simple. It contrasts uh, a pair of images from the Exodus from Egypt with a pair of images from the Exodus from Jerusalem. And the images are often paired, not only in terms of rhyme, but in such a way that you see the reversal of fortune. This, um, this pairing of the Exodus from Egypt and the Exodus from Jerusalem is one that's echoed in a number of Midrash, uh, Midrashic traditions um, and is really uh, fairly straightforward and fairly obvious. From the pinnacle of uh, God's intervention in history for our benefit, we come to the pinnacle of God's intervention for our detriment. Um, 
And again, if we think about uh, Pesach as, a, uh, as an almost antithetical experience to Tisha B'Av, or what would in a normal year be an antithetical experience to Tisha B'Av, um, I have often said in past years, and it strikes me every year again when I see this Kinah, um, on Pesach we have one narrative, we have one Haggadah, we have one story. Each of us can elaborate on the Haggadah in our own ways, but there's one text. When we talk about the tragedies of Jewish history, every text stands on its own. There's no master narrative. There's no one way of telling the story. In victory, there is one narrative, and in defeat, every narrative stands on its own. Nothing will suffice in terms of a master narrative to capture the pain and sorrow and suffering of every generation of Jews and every Jewish community that has experienced this kind of hardship. Um, some of the imagery here is just worth noting. For example, in the fourth stanza, Degan Shamayim Umitsur Mayim, in the wilderness, God provides us miraculously with food where there's no food. And then in the Exodus from Jerusalem, bitter grass and wormwood and bitter waters, where we had food in Jerusalem, uh, and now all of a sudden there was none and we all went hungry. Um, and again, um, Chagim v'shabatot, muftim v'otot, festivals and sabbaths and signs and wonder, b'tzitim Mitzrayim when I left Egypt, tanit v'evel rudofa hevel, fasted, mourning and vain pursuits when I left Jerusalem. The contrast, the very bitter contrast, of course, between uh, the experience of the festival to mark a historical occasion and the experience of fasting. Um, I do want to move on, though, because uh, time is running shorter than we expected, as usual. Um, to what is uh, always a highlight of the keynote, and I think especially this year, um, a keynote that speaks to our experience right now. Um, this is, of course, written by Yehuda HaLevi. Uh, it's among the most famous keynote. Uh, it has uh, essentially, essentially created an entire new genre of keynote, the keynote of longing. Uh, and following this kinah in the standard keynote, if you look, for example, on Sepharia, uh, all the keynote that follow this, all of them are copies of this. All of them are riffing on the themes and structure and images that, that you, Rabbi Huda HaLevi uh, generates in this kinah. It essentially becomes an entire new subcategory of keynote. Um, Zion surely you will inquire after the well-being of your imprisoned ones, those who seek your well-being and remnant of your flock. Yehuda Levi, of course, uh, is famous for many things, including the, uh, the book, uh, the Kuzari, which is uh, one of the most important works in uh, medieval Jewish philosophy. Um, he's also famous for his poems, uh, one of which is, Libi b'mizrach v'anochi b'sof marav. My heart is in the east and I am at the ends of the west. Yehudah Levi longs for Israel here with an intensity that this poem can barely contain. Um, he wants to be in Israel, he wants to travel Israel, he wants to feel Israel's rocks, he wants to breathe Israel's air. Um, there, there's, a, there's an intensely personal dimension to this poem that is matched only by the second person uh, who appears at the end of every single line, which is, of course, the land of Israel. So it's not only about his experience as somebody who's suffering, somebody who's longing, but it tells us just as much, if not more, about the object of his longing, which is Eretz Israel, who he addresses here, not as an object in the third person, but as his beloved in the second person. 
every line of the poem ends with the suffix aich, which means yours, the remnant of your flock. From west, east, north, and south, promote the well-being of the distant and close, of your distant and close from every direction. The, the translation doesn't always preserve that, that element. I'm, I'm not, not such a fan of this particular translation. Uh, there have, of course, been many translations, um, many copies, and many scholarly treatments of this. And I feel bad that in the time that we have to, to, to look at this, we're not really going to do it justice. Um, but it's so important as a poem, not only as a Kinan Tisha B'Av, that it has, had, uh, not, uh, it has had significant impact even on modern Hebrew. Uh, if you read through it uh, on your own, you will notice, of course, uh, the line that Naomi Shemer picked from here. Uh, for her song, uh, Yerushalayim Shal Zahav, where Yehuda Levi says, uh, and of course now I'm not going to be able to find it, where he says, uh, yeah, I'm not going to be able to find it. Ani kinor l'shiraich, I am a harp for your, for all of your songs. Um, the Hebrew here is, of course, similar to what we just read before, uh, coming out of the same Spanish tradition. Uh, it's more simpler, uh, it's more simple and more biblical in its tone. There's a lot of biblical imagery here, um, and again, there's uh, there's there's much a much less intricate structure, if a structure at all. Uh, there's rhythm, there's rhyme, but not much else. The, the kind of images tumbling out of Yehuda Levi's mouth, uh, one after the other, creates a sense of stream of consciousness which is really the point, because what Yehuda Levi is, is guiding us on here is a mental journey, a kind of dream journey from uh, Spain, where he lives most of his life, to the land of Israel, uh, where uh, eventually he travels uh, and, and, and ends his life. Um, he travels across space, he travels as well across time. Beginning, of course, with the verse that we saw across space, you should look after your, your, uh, the, those who seek you, uh, your flocks in all four directions. And then later on in the poem, he says, uh, would that I would wander among the places where God was revealed to your seers and envoys. Who can make wings for me so that I can roam from afar and move my ruptured heart to your ruptured hills? Uh, and then moving on later uh, in a slightly more uh, realistic uh, tone. Epola pai alai artsech ve'artsav v'naich ma'od v'achonenet afaraich. I will fall my face in your land. Oh, sorry, not here. I wanted to... Yeah, he travels all around. I will fall my face in your land and treasure stones and cherish your soil. He travels to Hebron, to the graves of the forefathers and foremothers. You get the sense here that if this could be, if this could be filmed nowadays, you would have kind of this, you know, this, this, this like, panoramic helicopter ride across Israel where he goes to Hebron and then he goes to to the Carmel and he goes to the Gilad. Um, he, 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 he's, he's interested in every, all in every part of, of, of Israel. It's holy places, it's grave sites, it's natural wonders. He's in awe of it all. Um, 
And then uh, he continues on uh, in, in imagery that is uh, a little different, uh, but, but, but uh, has the same uh, wondrous tone. It will be pleasant for me to walk naked and barefoot upon the desolate ruins that were once your shrines. In the place of your ark, now buried in the place of your cherubs who once dwelled in your innermost chambers. So he loves Eretz Yisrael, but which Eretz Yisrael does he love? Does he love the Eretz Yisrael of the present, of the past, of the future? Aside from the, the, the dimension of space, which is telescoped here as he speaks from Spain about the wonders of Eretz Yisrael and all of Eretz Yisrael at once, there's really a sense the time is telescoped here as well. He merges past, present, and future all into this one jumbled narrative where on the one hand, here he is in the land of Israel or imagining himself in the land of Israel, but he's really in the past and he's in the present, but he's also living in the glorious past that is no longer. The past where God's presence was felt, where God's Shekhinah, his divine presence uh, was, was a reality. Um, and now there's nothing left. And therefore, as he walks in Israel, uh, as, as, as much as he loves Israel, he's walking naked and barefoot um, because he's in mourning, because, uh, because Israel is so desolate and therefore he is so desolate. Um, the, the, the merging of past, present, and future here is really very striking in a number of different parts of the poem, only a few of which we'll have a chance to see. Um, for example, um, towards the end of the poem, um, Zion, perfectly beautiful with love and grace. Um, you were bound long ago. And bound to you are the souls of your comrades. So we have an image of Israel as beautiful, as magnificent. Those are the ones who rejoice in your tranquility, in your tranquility and who are anguished by your ruin and who weep for your tragedy. Well, is Israel tranquil or is it anguished? It is at the same time, because all of Jewish history here is kind of being telescoped into this one dreamscape, this one merging of many different places and times that all kind of get jumbled together. Uh, one commentator that I saw, uh, an essayist by the name of Natana Lifshitz, uh, tied in here the idea uh, elaborated on by Michel Foucault of uh, heterotopia, other spaces. Uh, and Foucault talks about other spaces in many different social senses. But one of them is the sense of other space as a holy space. And Foucault notes that when we talk about holy spaces, holy spaces often involve uh, a distortion of time in exactly the way that, that, uh, that we find here in Yehuda Levi's poem. When you enter into holy space, you leave the normal time stream of the rest of the world Somehow you step outside of time and you find yourself in another kind of reality. And that's where, uh, that's, that's the, the, the reality that Yehuda Levi is drawing himself, uh, drawing us into uh, in this poem. Um, this poem speaks to me the most on this particular Tisha B'Av, aside from being very beautiful and very poignant, um, because really it's about longing. There are many different themes that Tisha B'Av uh, draws out and, and, and makes us think about. Um, but longing is one that I think we feel uh, particularly, uh, particularly powerfully this year. What does it mean to long for something? It means to mourn and not to be able to let go. 
It means to realize that there's something you want that's just beyond your grasp, something that you had, something that you lost, and something that you hope to regain, but you just don't know when. And therefore, when we find ourselves uh, closed uh, in our houses or in our communities, um, wondering when we'll be able to go out again, when we won't be able to live a normal life again, um, when we feel ourselves um, far away from family members, far away from people and places that we love, um, this is a poem that speaks uh, very uh, tenderly to the experience that we're having this year. One can imagine this poem being written by somebody in the far west, um, longing for Israel and for the first time in modern memory, not being able to simply get on a plane and go there. Would that you would build wings for me, cries Yehuda Levi in the 10th century, um, in the 11th century, and now we know exactly how he feels. Um, the next kina, uh, as we move towards the end of our uh, discussion of keynote, um, is another one of my favorites. Uh, again, not because it's less tragic. In fact, I think it's in many ways more tragic and more raw than, uh, than Yehudani V, uh, but because it builds on the tradition of keynote that Rabbi Yehudani V establishes in a very creative way, um, and in a very different way than all the other keynote we've read. Inquire, you are consumed in fire after the well-being of your mourners who so strongly desire to reside in your dwellings. Like Yudhalevi, um, this Kina, which will, this Mekonein, this author who will identify in a minute, um, is speaking to an inanimate object in the second person and saying, won't you inquire about those who love you and those who desire you? But the inanimate object here is not the land of Israel, but rather she who has been consumed in fire, namely the Talmud. This poem is written, as you can see in the introduction here, by Maharam of Rotenberg, one of the towering scholars uh, in Germany in the 13th century, um, and whose imprisonment uh, and death uh, towards the imprisonment the last 12 years of his life and ultimately uh, his death uh, mark the end of, uh, of, of, of a, a very, uh, of, of, of the flowering of a Torah scholarship in Germany for many years afterwards. Um, Marami Rotenberg uh, was the student of Rabbi Chilmi Paris, uh, the scholar who uh, was engaged in the disputation or the trial of the Talmud in Paris in the year 1240. Um, this was the result of, uh, of a confluence of different factors. Uh, we have a great deal of information about the trial of the Talmud, um, though not any first-person records that would give us a sense of what actually transpired. We imagine the disputation uh, in Paris uh, as being similar to disputations that happened elsewhere uh, during the Middle Ages, but in fact it seems that it was really more of a trial, and Rabbi Chilmi Paris, who was one of the key figures involved on the Jewish side, um, rather than having the chance to face his uh, interlocutors, was probably uh, imprisoned during the time that he was, uh, that, that, that he was asked to defend the Talmud and, and not given a great deal of freedom at all. Um, the Maharam was his student uh, and was most likely a first-person witness to what happened during the trial of the Talmud and the aftermath in 1242, when, even before the verdict of the trial had been given, um, 24 carts of uh, Talmuds were taken into the public square in Paris and burned. Um, 
he was still a very young man at this point, as you can see, he's born in 1215, and the burning of Atalanta took place in 1242. And we can only imagine the impact that it had uh, on his life and, and how tragic he felt that it was. On the one hand, you think of books as an inanimate object, uh, certainly less tragic than the life, the losses of life uh, of communities uh, that we've been talking about up until this point in the keynote. Um, and yet, if you've ever been a scholar, uh, if you want looking for uh, one girsa, one variant, textual variant that would help you solve a particularly naughty problem in, uh, in a Talmudic sugya, um, if you've ever been somebody who doesn't have access to a Talmud, uh, then you understand what the loss of a book is. And Kalvachomer, with the loss of 24 carts full of Talmuds, are uh, for our uh, reception of this very important document from this very pivotal period during its uh, during its history. Um, I used to bring my students, I've told this story on a number of occasions, and that somebody will remind me that I've told it uh, in past years, but uh, I took my students uh, on a number of occasions to the library at JTS to see the rare book room, um, and, um, and every book is handled with gloves. <laughs> as a relic, because that's what it is. Uh, they have, for example, uh, an autographed copy of the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam's magnum opus, which was uh, reviewed and signed by Maimonides himself. And you're just kind of in awe that this book was handled by Maimonides. Uh, what would we give for the many books that were destroyed here and elsewhere in Jewish history? Um, the Maharam writes this kina to the Talmud uh, and speaks to it in the second person. Um, and as we saw before with the other kina that we read uh, commemorating the, uh, the, the massacres of the Middle Ages, this one is very raw and very personal. And what we find here towards the end of the kina especially um, is a sense of loss uh, about uh, the tradition that's being lost, not only the object of the Talmud itself, the book of the Talmud, um, and its abuse at the hands of the Christians who, uh, the Christian uh, authorities who burned them, but also uh, the, the, the loss of the voices that have been lost to tradition when these books have been destroyed. He says here, and I, beloved and forlorn, remained alone without them like a mass atop the mountains of your towers. No longer will I listen to the voices of your singers, for severed are the strings of your timbrels and flutes. There's a sense here that the Maharam feels that he's been cut off from a tradition and that that tradition has been forever lost to history. Similar to what we read before, that the, he mourned not only the loss of life, but also the loss of Torah scholarship and leadership. Uh, the Maharam reflects a similar sentiment here um, as he's mourning the loss of these, uh, of, of these physical books. As we approach the end of our time together, um, we have to, of course, acknowledge the greatest tragedy um, in terms of scope and scale uh, of Jewish history, which is, of course, the Holocaust. Um, a number of different keynote have been written about the Holocaust. Um, there's one that has been particular, become particularly uh, prominent in Israel, which is based on the last keynote that we'll sing together, Elit Sion. Um, this one was written by uh, Rav Shimon Schwab, who was the, um, who himself was from Germany um, and emigrated to the United States with his community. Um, 
in uh, the early uh, the early 20th century. This is, of course, the uh, the community, the German community in Washington Heights. Um, so Shimon Schwab was again engaged in, uh, in, in, in an act of personal mourning when he penned this kina. He uses, of course, a lot of the imagery that we've seen in other keynotes, um, a similar structure, uh, albeit one that I think is more typical, not of the keynotes, but of, um, of the spichot that we'll, continue, we'll uh, start reading in a number of weeks. Um, it's hard to say um, how a kina should be judged when we are still so close to uh, the time of the tragedy. Um, writing poetry, I think, benefits from, um, from a certain degree of historical distance, which of course we do not have uh, the benefit of. Um, and it's hard to know, it, 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 even if we have, even as we have so many um, testaments to and, uh, and, and memorials to the Holocaust, um, poetry is one that I think uh, is, 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 is still waiting, uh, is still waiting to be written, even though we have a number of keynotes that, 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 uh, that do the job as well as we can. Um, he too, of course, mourns not only the terrible, terrible loss of life, but also the loss of Torah, the loss of Torah scholarship, for the prince of Torah, pillars of tradition, the flower of priest, the youth, the scholars, the teachers, men and women, for the precious young and the houses of study. Um, I, I, I forget where I heard the statistic that in Warsaw in, in the late 1930s, in one year, there were more books of Torah published um, than at any other point ever in Jewish history um, since or uh, up until that point or, or, or maybe even since just the, the, the sense of the richness of Jewish life in Europe that was lost um, is still staggering and it's still hard for us to put into words and, uh, and we're grateful the words that we have. Um, but unfortunately, I, I, I want to push on because uh, we, we're running out of time and I want to get to the last keynote that we have uh, that, that I want to say together. Um, the last keynote, which ends the recitation of keynote uh, in, uh, again, I think all keynote traditions, is Elitzion. And uh, maybe we'll sing together a few verses because this one is always sung. Um, and the tune is, is a tune that's, uh, that, that, that's fairly well known and, uh, and, and sung all over. Um, Elitzion is... Um, um, addresses, takes, picks up on imagery uh, the, um, that's found in Echa and also a number of other keynotes where Tzion, the image of Tzion, is depicted as a woman. Um, and the feminine imagery here is refracted in an interesting way. Elit Tzion ve'areha kamo isha betzireha, lament Zion in her cities like a woman in labor pains. This is an image that's found, uh, I think, not in Echa, but in the other prophetic writings, where, uh, where Israel, the, the, the feminine image of Israel is compared to a woman in labor, of course, undergoing a great deal of suffering, but of course, there's hope at the end. Like a maiden girl in her sack, girt in her sackcloth for the husband of her youth. 
The other feminine image here is of a young bride who's mourning uh, the husband who she barely had known. So we have these two images, the one of a woman in childbirth where the outcome is yet unknown. I think we're too confident in our, our sense that, uh, that, that labor necessarily yields a positive outcome given the, 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 the prevalence of, uh, of, of, of death during childbirth in a pre-modern era. Um, but the other image of a woman who has no hope, who has lost uh, the, the husband of her youth and will forever be in mourning. So these two images paired together uh, give us a sense of the two halves of Tisha B'Av, the one that uh, we, we uh, said last night, which is uh, unmitigated suffering and, and uh, unbridled mourning. And the one that we're about to enter into now as we approach Chatzot, the half point of the day, at least in the United States, um, where we take a more hopeful turn and think, even though that we are suffering, that there is hope, uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel that we can see maybe uh, a glimmer of redemption. So we'll sing uh, at least a few verses together. Um, maybe try to sing the whole thing. Uh, I will sing and you can join in. Uh, unfortunately, Zoom does not allow us to sing together, as I said, without a great deal of dissonance. Um, but we'll sing this together and this will end our recitation of keynotes. Elitzion aviadeha, kemo ishabetzideha, vechivetulach agudatzak, alabala neuedeha, alei armon asherutash, viashmatzon adadeha, vialamiat mecharfeela, Betoch mikdash hadadeha, aleya galut mishartel, mani meshirazemadeha, vihaladama masher shupach, kemoame meyeodeha, alei hengyona mecholeha, asheradamam beadeha, Vehalavadashamimahuavitulasanahedadeha <laughs> Venea da vida gevideha, viale of yamasher hashach, viet sarua ketadeha, alea havoda shergala, viet horbana devideha, vialo heit sashelahats, visamasakima hagodeha. Aleya machatz v'lov makot asher huku anezideha v'hala niputz leisela od aleha neadeha aleya simachat oiveha v'sach kamal shevadeha v'hali nui v'neicholin. Nedivehatehoneha, Aleifeshasheravta, Silola de rechashudeha, Vialatsivot kehaleha, 
uh, for those who want to go back to some of the keynote that we've said together and examine them in more detail, um, I think you have access to the keynote file uh, on the, in the chat box. Um, it's also available if you Google uh, current uh, Kina excerpt online, you'll, uh, you'll find it. Um, and as I said, it's available for free download. Um, I hope you'll join us this afternoon for uh, a series of lectures starting in about an hour, um, starting with uh, Professor Nathaniel Berman. Um, and uh, I just want to thank everybody for joining us, and I hope this contributed to your Tushal Be'av. Thank you, Rabbi Reifman. Thank you, Rabbi Neet Sperling. I just wanted to elaborate a little bit on what Rabbi Reifman was mentioning in terms of our upcoming uh, classes this afternoon. Uh, at one o'clock, we have, as Rabbi Reifman said, uh, a class with Dr. Nathaniel Berman, The Impossibility of Mourning, Zoharic Thoughts on Two Millennia and Counting of Tisha B'Av, uh, at 2.30, we will be learning with Dr. Tammy Jakobowitz on, on suffering and metaphors, limits and opportunities. At 4 o'clock, we have two different sessions. We have one with Rabbi Dr. Julia Watts-Belzer, God Who Suffers With Divine Presence Amidst Pain, as well as a session that is open to uh, young women in high school, led by Shira Hecht-Kohler, The Poetics of Destruction, Text Study, and Interactive Workshop. Uh, so feel free to register for any of those on our website. I will put a link in the chat right now for you to go get more information about any of those programs. You can also follow us on Facebook Live if you're watching there. All of those will be live streamed. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you again to Rabbi Reifman and Rabbi Sperling. And uh, a meaningful rest of the day to all. <laughs>